All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. finish up the 13th chapter of Luke this morning. I'm going to preach a message of time for weeping. You know, our culture has a strange relationship with sadness. Sadness is one of the most fundamental emotions that we go through as humans, isn't it? But it's something our culture really fails to discuss and it never ever encourages sadness. And think about it, we say things such as big girls don't cry, there's no crying in baseball, smile, cheer up, snap out of it, don't be sad, we're cold. But scripture has a whole different relationship with sadness. On the one hand, we are told to cheer up, right? Paul tells us to rejoice always. There's no Eeyore Christians allowed, as I've said. Yet on the other hand, Scripture embraces, and albeit for a season and the right reason, even encourages sadness. For one, the Bible never hides the sadness of its characters. Joseph, when he saw his brothers, Moses at the sins of God's people, David over his own sins, Paul as he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and this morning we'll see as Jesus is lamenting and weeping over his own nation because it's rejected him as Messiah and the door to salvation indeed is narrow. And further scripture often does encourage us to be sad and weak. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says that there is a time for laughter and there is a time to weep. So we as followers of Christ I think can commit two equally egregious errors. One is to never be sad and the other is to always be sad. The biblical balance is that there is a time to laugh, there's a time to rejoice as we did this morning over what God did in Pakistan, but equally there is a time for weeping. If you don't hear anything else I say other than at the very end the the application conclusion I'm going to give us, you might want to go ahead and write this down, it's at the conclusion I think, but this is the quote I want you to remember. The spiritual business that is the closest to the heart of God is that business of weeping and travailing for lost souls. The spiritual business that is the closest to the heart of God is weeping for lost souls. And I want to ask you, look at me, everybody in here, look at me. When is the last time you wept over lost souls? When is the last time I wept over lost souls? When is the last time this church wept over lost souls? And so we're going to look at Jesus' own time of weeping this morning. One, it begins with an interrogation and ends with a lamentation. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 13. Starting in verse 22 to 35. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the master of the house is risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, that for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow on the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Word of God is the people of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the time you've given us so far to rejoice. Father, to sing praises and hymns and songs about you. And Father, to hear how, Father, through uh, our church and other churches, Father, you have taken uh, us not just to save us, but to use us in taking the gospel. Father, all the way from Tipton County to Pakistan, and so we do rejoice over that, Father. But we come knowing, Father, your own son wept over lost souls, and I pray, Father, that we would never, ever come to the place where we would stop weeping over the same. I pray you would give us spiritual eyes and ears to hear what you would have us to take from this message today, to apply it to our lives and also as a church. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to try and get through this quickly as I can but without <coughs> slaughtering it and leaving out a bunch but so you're not here at 1230 but first look at a time for weeping and interrogation look at the journey in verse 22 it says Jesus is going on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem if you remember in chapter 9 verse 51 it said that Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem deliberately and without haste because he's on a divine timetable Jesus is steadfastly making his way to the cross all the while, he's fulfilling his threefold mission of preaching, teaching, and healing. And all the while, what is happening is that religious division is continuing and growing against him. So that's kind of the backdrop of it. So look at verse 23. There's a question. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So as Jesus is going on his merry way, Luke tells us somebody asked him a very poignant question. Lord, how many folks are going to be saved? A whole bunch or just a little bit? I mean, Vic and I were just in Mexico and about the only word we knew was un poquito, a little. So he's saying, is it going to be a whole bunch or un poquito? A whole bunch of folks going to be saved or just a few folks going to be saved? Now I want you to think about this question as far as the motive of the questioner. Positively, perhaps... He's a disciple of Christ and he had been listening closely to Jesus' teaching because what had Jesus taught elsewhere? Had Jesus taught elsewhere that there was going to be a whole bunch of people saved or a few people saved? Few. So positively, maybe he's been listening to Jesus and maybe he understands that in fact few people will be saved. Negatively, Hughes points out that actually this question was a smug, self-complacent question because the general understanding among Jews was this. All Jews would be saved except for the very worst. And all Gentiles would be lost except for a very few such as Rahab. And so 
uh, as in our day, this is a hotly debated question. Rabbis then had different views, and now today we have different views. Some people believe that there will not be a whole lot of people saved, and some people believe in universalism. That's what I've talked about before. The gospel of Oprah Renfrey is universalism. That we're all getting to heaven just in different little rowboats. doesn't matter whether you worship Allah or you worship nothing or you worship Jehovah, you worship Jesus, it doesn't matter. And as in our day, it's a very relevant question, is it not? In any generation, is there any more important question than those that relate to salvation? None. And so this question had been prompting and building. Think about it. Before, great multitudes had followed Christ, and now it's down to what? A faithful few. And you know what the Bible says? And in the end, there's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be a falling away. And so, also great crowds had come to hear Christ, but the committed few or the committed followers were getting scarcer and scarcer, which reminds us, as we've talked about before, are we a fan or are we a follower? <coughs> and then think about Jesus' own messages. Were Jesus' messages easy to take? They were very difficult, were they not? In Luke 14, 33, he says, Therefore, anyone of you who did not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus' previous teaching was that the way was narrow. And so building since chapter 12 is that yes, it's going to be very few people that would be saved. But no matter what the motive of the questioner, what had prompted the question, how much it had been building, the one thing for sure that we've got to get in our mind because we don't understand this from a 21st century perspective is that from that perspective in time, what they expected Jesus to say was that all Jews were automatic ends. And they're strutting around prouder than a peacock because they're all going to make it. And so Jesus' response must have come as quite a bombshell. Look at what he says. Verse 23, 24, And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In typical Jesus fashion, does he answer the question directly? No. What he does is he urges the questioner and anybody else that is listening to strive. The word strive is plural. So he's telling everybody within earshot to strive, to make sure they're in the number. Dr. Moore says this isn't some mathematical exercise and I thought about the old song, you remember? Oh, when the saints go marching in, oh Lord, what? I want to be in that number. The song does not say, oh, when the saints go marching in, oh Lord, will the number be a bunch or the number be few? What matters is, will I be in that number? That's what matters. So let me ask you a couple things. Do you think Jesus' suggestion is suggesting work salvation? Because he says strive. Well, why do you believe that? Because the Bible never says that we get there by works. Amen? Amen. Very first, go back to the father of our faith, Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. It says he did a bunch of good stuff and therefore God counted it for him as righteousness, right? It said he believed the Lord and God counted it towards him as righteousness. 
What does it say in Ephesians 2, 8-9? You've done a bunch of good stuff and therefore you have deserved to get into the pearly gates. It is by grace through faith you have been saved. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And if you can't please Him without it, you sure can't get saved without it. Amen? And so the old covenant is faith, the new covenant is faith, and so then what is Jesus teaching? Well, think about it. How do you define the word strive? There's two ways it's defined in the English dictionary. One is to make a great effort to achieve or obtain something, and the other is to struggle or fight vigorously, to agonize. And that's actually what the word is, is agonizame, from agon, which means conflict or struggle, and we get our English word agonize. So you could... Put in your margin there. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Agonize. And this is what it is. It's a present middle imperative. Let me break that down. Imperative means it's a command. This is not an option. To be saved, Jesus is saying, it's not an option. Agonize over your salvation. The middle means Vicki Cook. She agonized. And it doesn't mean that for Matthew Cook, that Buffy Cook agonizes for him to get in through the narrow gate. He has to agonize for himself. Just because I'm a pastor does not mean he's automatically getting in through the narrow door. And the present means this. You agonize and you agonize and you agonize and you agonize and you keep on agonizing. Salvation is not something that happened for Buffy Cook when he got dumped back in the waters of Liberty Baptist Church. Salvation is something that continues to be real and I continue to agonize over and you should too. That's what Jesus is saying. And think about it. He had already said in the kingdom parables, how many of the souls were good soul? One. One. Does that imply narrow? You remember the sheep and the goats? It's a whole bunch of goats that get put out in the pasture, literally. Right? As one pastor said, the presumption of salvation through privilege continues to delude multitudes in the profession church today. Many will seek and not be able. Jesus does not say some will seek and not be able. So the implication is the answer to the questioner's question is what? Will those who are saved be few? Absolutely. Yes, it will be few. And so look at what he says, strive to enter the narrow door. Why do you think salvation is a struggle? Why will some seek and not be able? Salvation was free, but it ain't easy. Amen? Amen. Think about it. Because it cost... It's cost with regards to human pride. What do we want to do? We want to say we're good, what? People. And we deserve to be saved. We want to do enough stuff that we can then earn God's favor. So it costs in terms of human pride. Salvation is, has nothing to do with me. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. Amen? Amen. And it's cost with regards to sinners' love of sin. Why do we sin? I put in my notes this song because we like it, we love it, we want some more of it. That is us. We love sin. And therefore, we really don't, a lot of times, 
desire salvation. And then it's cost with regards to the world and Satan opposing truth. Patty, do y'all see young men that are blinded to the truth? Every day. Do you see young men that are battling with the lust of the flesh and are trying to tear their desire for salvation away? Absolutely. That's why it's a narrow door. Because it is a high cost to get through it. So look at the agony. He says strive, agonize. I already told you this, this means to continue to. Dr. McLaren said, we're not saved by effort, but we shall not believe without effort. Dr. Barclay gives this illustration. He says, the Christian way is like a climb up a mountain path towards a peak which will never be reached in this world. It was said of two gallant climbers who died on Mount Everest, when last seen, they were going strong for the top. That ought to be said of Buffy Cook when he dies. When he was last seen, he was going hard for the top to reach the prize of being just like Christ. Isn't that what Paul said? And on another one's uh, tomb, it was written, He died climbing. That is us. It's a constant onward and upward way. Dr. Barclay makes this note. He says, we run a certain danger. It's easy to think once we have made a commitment of ourselves to Jesus Christ, we've reached the end of the road. Some people, once they get saved, once they say some little prayer, once they sign some commitment card, once they get dunked in a tank, they think, it's over. It's done. I'm once saved, always saved. You better check yourself and you better examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. He says there's no such finality in the Christian life. We must always be going forward or necessarily we go backwards. So look at the closed door. Look at verse 25 to 27. He says when once the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then we will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Do you know that there's a time limit to salvation? Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Do you know today you're alive? Today your loved ones, your neighbors, your enemies are alive, but death or the Lord's return will slam this door shut and then there is no more opportunity. We're not Catholic and we don't believe in purgatory. There are no second chances. You had 150 bazillion chances while you walked this earth. The door will slam shut. And I want you to take some notes of what happens after the fact. Look first. Folks will want in after the fact. You begin to stand outside and to knock. And let me ask you, why are they knocking and want in? Are they knocking and won't in because they really love Jesus? Are they knocking and won't in because they nothing of their heart desire? But to, I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, my heart desire, the greatest moment of my day is not seeing patience as much as I love that. The greatest moment of my day is sitting down in my couch with my little UT blanket, whether they won by 100 or lost by 100 like last night, but sitting with my blanket and then opening up God's Word and sitting there in communion with the very God who loves me and created me. 
They have no desire to come in because they really love the Master. They just don't want to be outside the feast. It's self-serving. And then, second, look at what this says. Jesus says, the Master will say what? I don't know you. You know where that word is first used? And Adam knew his wife Eve. No implies you have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Is that how you would describe your relationship with the Lord? It's not about religion. And as we said, we wouldn't even say it's about relationship, it's about a romance. Amen? I have a lot of relationships with a lot of ladies, but I only have one romance, and that's with this woman. You have a romance with Jesus Christ. And third, folks will argue that they deserve entrance. Look at what they say. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Do you know folks still do the same today? They say, well, Lord, we ate and we drank with you at the Lord's supper table. We heard you preach in our church. Brothers and sisters, if that was good enough, then Herod would be in heaven right now. It's not good enough just to have a passing recognition of Christ and then forth the evidence will be and as clear. If you plant an orange tree and you go out there next spring to get some oranges off of it and it's got apples, you're going to be upset. A tree is known by what? It's fruit. And that's exactly what Jesus says. No, you are workers of iniquity. So look then at the closed feast. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, you yourselves cast out. People from the east, west, north, and south, when you see that, that's the Gentiles. What he's saying is, y'all are going to look and you're going to see the great fathers of the faith and all the prophets sitting at the banquet feast table and all the Gentiles around it, and y'all are going to be cast out. And notice what he says, that... Hell is a real place of torment. Do you notice the awareness? You will see. It's a place of actual pain. I've heard people say, well, man, if hell is just all the bad stuff I've done in my life, I can't wait to get there. You obviously don't know what hell's going to be like. It says weeping and gnashing. Weeping, it's going to be grief. Emotional, mental grief. You're going to be sitting there for all eternity going, Patty Yates shared the gospel with me. Why didn't I believe her? Why didn't I believe the Lord? It's going to be weeping. And it's going to be gnashing. Some people are going to be going, I don't deserve to be here. I was a good person. It's a real place of torment. Do you want this for your Brother, your sister, your mother, your next door neighbor, do you want it for your worst enemy? As Jimmy said last night, it's not about how many people love Buffy Cook. It's about how many people Buffy Cook goes out and loves, even if they hate me. Because I wouldn't want this for my worst enemy. And we shouldn't either. And so Jesus says there's going to be a great eternal reversal. Who's going to be at the greatest feast ever held? Is it going to be the Hollywood elite? Is it going to be pro athletes? Is it going to be the rich and famous? 
It's going to be the big three, and I don't mean LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. I mean Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, and a bunch of no-name Gentiles. And look at what he says. He says, some of you that are first are going to be last. Stories told of a woman that dies and goes to heaven, and she had lived in the lap of luxury her whole life here. And she goes, and the angel comes to take her to her house. They go down Main Street and there is mansions because y'all know what Main Street in most towns look like, right? It's the old houses that are big and huge and beautiful and they're going down Main Street. She's thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. They go out into the kind of the suburbs and the houses are getting smaller. They take her to the outskirts of town, the angel does, and there's this tiny house. Y'all seen these tiny houses? I don't know how people live in the things. There's this tiny house, looks like a little run-down hut, and the angel says, all right, here's your house, and she says, how is this mine? I lived in the lap of luxury. I can't live in this. And the angel says, that's all that we could build with what you sent us. That's all we could build with the materials that you sent us. Jimmy just asked about a man that's serving across the world that doesn't get a dime for pastoring his church. And can I stand up here and tell you I'm giving sacrificially? No, I'm giving. But is it really giving to I hurt? And if I ain't giving to you, I hurt, I imagine there's others in our church that ain't giving to we hurt either. Mm -hmm. We ought to support men like that. <coughs> Finally, a time for weeping, an interrogation, and then a lamentation. Look at this report that comes to Jesus. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now let me ask you, what do you think was the motive of these Pharisees in warning Jesus to run for his life? You think it was good or bad? It's possible it could have been good because not all Pharisees hated Jesus, right? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were Pharisees. But I think it's bad. Really all they're wanting to do is they're just wanting to either shut Jesus up or what they would really like even better is if he would be scared into coming back to Jerusalem where they have jurisdiction over him and they can kill him. And they can shut him up for good. But here's the lesson whether it was good or bad. Jesus was not afraid of danger. And I know many of you are not either because I know many of you have been with me personally to Africa and risked your own life. And I know a man that just sat here and went to a country that very few people would ever go to. This is a church that doesn't run. This is a church that like the Lord stands because 2 Timothy 1.7 says, We have not been given a spirit of fear, but we have been given one of power. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabbath. We went through the names of God. If He's for us, who can be against us? Amen? And Jesus knew He wasn't going to die until He got to Jerusalem because it had been foreordained from the foundation of the earth that He is the Lamb of God would be slain in Jerusalem on a certain day at a certain time. It wasn't going to happen one second before then, was it? And no king earthly was ever going to stop it. So look at how He responds. You go and tell that fox. Now let me ask you, do you think Jesus sinned in saying that? Well, you, you know the church answer is no because Jesus didn't sin. Amen? Because the Bible is clear that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin that you might be the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Correct? But there are some verses, uh, Exodus 22.28 is one. 
in which it says don't speak out about public uh, figures, but Jesus is speaking as the mouthpiece of God, as a prophet of God. And remember back what had John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, what are y'all doing out here? So it was appropriate at times to rebuke leaders publicly. Amen? And so more than anything, what Jesus has is boldness. Let me ask you, we've talked about it before. If you took Crossway Baptist Church and you took the first century Acts church and you compared them, would there be any comparison? I could sit here and we could go through it, but for time's sake I won't. But there are many verses that talk about in the Acts. You remember when they arrest Peter and them? And what did they pray for? Get us out of here! We need a hot meal! We need a shower! Give us boldness! Then we can continue! I don't care what they do! Kill me! Kill me if you got to! But let me continue to have boldness to speak the Word of God. That's what we need in America, brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. If you ain't watched the news, then you don't understand that we need boldness. Amen. We need boldness to stand up and tell people what is right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what the fall did? The fall caused us to constantly determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. Mm -hmm. And so today, what is evil in God's eyes, people call good. And they not only call it good, they give applause to it, Paul says. And we need to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. And not because I say so, and not because I don't love you, but because God says so, and because your eternal salvation depends on it. Here's the irony of what he was saying. Most Old Testament prophets, who killed them? Foreign enemies? Jewish people! It's literally roast preacher! And so the irony is, Jesus is saying, do you think I should really be worried about Herod or you Pharisees? You Pharisees. And so look at the rue or the lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what great tenderness. You know, Jesus speaks like He's been to Jerusalem many, many times, doesn't He? But you know, in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have no indication of any visits. It reminds us, brothers and sisters, we have this amount of a sketch of Jesus' life. The city that kills the prophets, what great mercy. He could have said, this is the city that kills the prophets, let me rain down some fire, hell, and brimstone upon it. But he says, how often would I have gathered great compassion? When does a hen gather chicks? When there's danger. When there's danger, absolutely. And let me tell you, this illustration would not have been lost on the Jewish people. They were agricultural people, and the psalmists, who their hymn books, reused this illustration repeatedly. Let me ask you, have you let Jesus tuck you snugly under His wings? And look at Jesus, what Jesus says, why He was unable to gather them. You simply would not. You ever had an offer of love spurned? Ever gave your heart away and got it crushed? How terribly sad Jesus had to be in this moment. 
how unbelievably glorious his love even in his last moments. Because he sat there and he said, Father, forgive them because they really don't even know what they're doing. And look, even the love he had, we find judgment. Leviticus 2.11 talks about offering your offering with no honey in it. And Dr. Rogers talks about the honey gospel. What we got running around in American churches today is the honey gospel. It's all love and no judgment. And Jesus says, yes, I love you. I wish I could have gathered you. But look, let me tell you, your house, which means the family of Israel and the temple itself, it is forsaken and it will be judged and left desolate. And he says, I tell you, you will not see me. But look, even in the midst of judgment, there's hope. Because you will not see me, what? Until. Now you really want to blow your mind. Maybe we'll get Phil Ramsey to come talk on it. On Israel in the end times. That'll start to blow your mind. You start peeling away the layers of that onion. And where Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. You go figure that one out. But the point is that at the second coming there will be many believing Jews that will see Christ. Alright, in closing. It's been well said, great teachers repeat themselves. And I don't know that I'd classify myself as a great teacher, but I often do repeat myself, right? Many times, brothers and sisters, I have called on us both corporately and individually to examine ourselves. And with good reason, because the Bible is clear that we are to do that regularly. In Lamentations 3.40, it says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. In James 1, he says, You be what? A hearer, not a hearer, but a doer. We made plain this morning, the Bible says there's a time for rejoicing and a time for weeping. And brothers and sisters, I praise God our church prayerfully and financially supports the heartbeat of God missions from Tipton County to Pakistan. And we've had a time to rejoice over that this morning. But can I tell you, if I'm being honest before you, my heart breaks over what I see in our church and in our association. And I'll tell you about the association in a second, but in our church. I weep for our church and I weep for our people. And I want us to close by examining ourselves. Are we sad Are we weeping like Christ over lost souls? Let me go start at the upper level first. Corporate. And our association. Dr. Wiersbe made this point. He said, I sometimes get theological letters. People send him theological letters under the guise of some theological thing to ask him some question. Really, they're just trying to trap him just like they did Jesus. And he says they're from his radio listeners and it'll be theological letters on things such as predestination, election, other difficult doctrines. And you know what he says is his reply to them? Does he go into a tirade to fully discuss all of that? Predestination, election, Calvinism, Arminianism. You know what he'd ask them? How's your prayer life? When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? 
Brothers and sisters, this word is very clear that there will be no divisions amongst you. And what I see in our association sometimes is more division than people trying to get busy out winning the lost for Christ. Now how about corporately bringing it, the hammer home on us? If I'm being honest, Crossway is not a house of prayer for the many who are lost. If it was, we'd have a lot more people in these pews on Wednesday night. If judging by our attendance on Wednesday night is a, a gauge and a thermometer for whether we think corporate prayer for lost people is important, we would come away with the conclusion that corporate prayer for lost people is not important at Crossway Baptist Church. And I'm just being honest. Right now I'm your pastor, I'm not your friend. And I'm, some of you, I'm speaking to the choir. You know that, correct? Secondly, is Crossway really a place of compelling people out of the highways and hedges to come in? Are you inviting people? If not, why are you not inviting them to our church? And frankly, I really don't care if you invite them to Crossway. Invite them somewhere. Let's get them in the kingdom. Let's get them through the narrow door. But as a whole, I don't see that happening in our church. One thing I can definitely say about Crossway is we're a home to a closed baptistry. We ain't had anybody get saved and come down and get baptized in I can think at least two years. And brothers and sisters, that keeps me awake at night. You can ask my wife. That breaks my heart. To week in and week out, come in and not see anybody get saved is extremely discouraging. Let me turn it on each of us, including myself as an individual. Am I, Buffy Cook, sad that a few will be saved? Does that keep me up at night that a few people will be saved? Does it keep me up at night that the vast majority of my family, based upon statistics from what Jesus is saying, will not be saved? Does it make me sad that many will not enter the door? Does it drive me to my knees that many won't stoop to enter the door? Does it make me sad that there's a lot of casualties along the way because a lot of people who initially made a claim of faith for Christ stop agonizing? If someone used to be in the pew beside you and they're no longer in the pew beside you, when's the last time you called them? When's the last time you text them? What does Jesus say? Oh, we're thankful that there's 99 sheep. Well, okay, so we lost one. It's okay. Is that what He says? Does He say, now, now you send the pastors out to go get that one? Does He say, you go send the deacons out to get that one? You. Go get that one. Does it make you 
sad that many will be excluded from the feast? Is it getting the lead out of your feet and on the pavement of soul winning? Does it make you sad that many time will simply run out for them? Think about this. One of the things I complain about at my office is y'all have got to leave me some same-day appointments. Because you know what? There's some people today that are sick and they need to get in and see the doctor. And if there aren't any same-day appointments, if I'm too busy, they can't get healed. Do you see the illustration in the application? We're so busy running around like little worker bee ants. Trying to get this nugget and that nugget and this nugget. We have no room on our calendar for same-day appointments. And all the while, people are dying and going to hell. They're sick and they need the doctor. And they don't need him tomorrow. They need him today. I mean, Amy talked about it Wednesday night. Just because somebody's 80 years old, brothers and sisters, and they're facing death, don't you presume that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior just because they're 80 and living in the South? Does it make you sad that a lot of folks in the church are just going through the motion and they're going to hear, I don't know you? Are you serving in the church so that doesn't happen? Does it make you sad that America is resisting Jesus' love? Does it not make you sick what you see? Are we speaking boldly? Now, let me say, time for weeping, a time for rejoicing. Does it excite you that Jimmy just said that folks from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and that we as a church have had a part to take the gospel to a people that are living without hope? A land of 97% hopelessness. Does that not fire you up? If it don't get you fired up, your wood is wet or you ain't got no wood. So if it excites you, are you putting your checkbook where your heart is? I'll close with this. I'm going to read it twice because it's so good. Dr. Spurgeon said, he said, even fanaticism is to be preferred to indifference. I'd sooner risk the dangers of a tornado of a religious excitement than see the air grow stagnant with dead formality. Brothers and sisters, I've been your pastor at this church for five years. And I've been amazed at some of the things that God has done in the life of the people in our church. What I'm starting to see is some stagnation and some dead formality. And I know it ain't just I, but it's our Lord Jesus Christ that wants to whip us up into a tornado of religious excitement to go out and win the very people that he sat and wept over. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, even as much of a blessing as it is, Father, we know that it's a two-edged sword. And so, Father, it cuts. And so, Father, I pray you would 
use it today to cut me first and foremost as the under-shepherd of this body of believers. Father, that I would leave out of here and I would be sadder for lost souls than I ever have been. I would be driven to my knees more than you've driven me before. And Father, I pray you would do the same for each and every one of us. Father, I pray that this would be a church that continues to be alive for you and gets to hear exciting reports time and time again, Father, of how you have used us to take the gospel to our neighbor at the end of the street, to a person we've never ever met in our life, all the way across the world, being in China, Africa, or Pakistan. Father, I pray you would forgive us in the many ways in which we failed you. And Father, I pray that you would bless this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that I pray. Amen. So the invitation is twofold if you're here this morning. One, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, Jesus says you're Savior, you need to get saved. If you're lost, you need saved. Amen? Amen. The last three weeks we've talked about the kingdom. It manifested, rejected, defended, illustrated. This morning could have been the kingdom accessed. I love this one quote. This one pastor said, The only passport to the kingdom is repentance and submission to God. So if you repented of your sins... Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in Him, put your faith and trust in what He did on the cross, and submitted to Him as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, come this morning and do so. If you're here and you're saved, then what you need is discipled. Y'all know the name of this series? Follow Me. We're to follow Christ. And to follow Christ means we will have times of weeping. Is your heart broke over your disobedience this morning? Our church's disobedience this morning, our association's disobedience, the Southern Baptist disobedience, us as American Christians' disobedience, come this morning and confess and rededicate yourself as we stand. I think we have a song as we sing. Stand with me.